Answer the question of who benefits or profits most directly from an action, event, or outcome, and you always have the starting point for your analysis or investigation. And sometimes it will also give you the end point. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle No Wall They Can Build a guide to borders and migration across North America. Episode 7, Designed to Kill, Part 1. Who Benefits? Designed to Kill. Who benefits? The suffering that takes place every day on the border is not an accident. It is not a mistake, and it is not the result of a misunderstanding. It is the predictable and intentional result of policies implemented at every level of government on both sides of the border. These policies have rational objectives and directly benefit identifiable sectors of the population of both countries. It may be evil, but it's not stupid. If this sounds a little shrill, let me explain how I've seen this play out on the ground. When I started working in the desert, I began to notice some very peculiar things about the Border Patrol's operations. They would do a lot of enforcement in some areas, and very little in others. And this would not necessarily correspond to which areas were busy and which areas were slow. In fact, often the enforcement would take place in such a way that it would push traffic into rather than out of the busiest areas where Border Patrol would keep a low profile until the very northern end of the route. At that point, there would be a moderate amount of enforcement again, but not really what you would expect, given the numbers of people that were moving through. Then they started building lots of surveillance towers. But once again, the towers were not really built in the places where the traffic was heaviest. They were built on the edges of them. If anything, they seemed to be intent on forcing traffic into the busiest routes rather than out of them. What was happening? Meanwhile, I was constantly meeting migrants whose groups had been split up by helicopters. The Border Patrol would fly over them a few feet off the ground, everybody would run in different directions, and soon there would be 30 people wandering lost across the desert in groups of two or three. What seemed particularly odd was that the Border Patrol often made no effort to actually apprehend these groups after breaking them up. They just flew away. Why? We got a call from the Mexican consulate. A man's family had contacted them. He had been missing for nine days. The last time anybody had seen him, he was somewhere near a small body of water with a fractured rib. They thought that he was in our area somewhere. We searched and searched for about a week, but we never found him. His brother, who had papers, came up with a horse. He combed the desert on horseback for another week and eventually found his brother's body. Two weeks later, a man came walking in the camp. He was carrying an almost empty gallon jug of water with our markings on it in one hand, and a white shirt tied to a long stick in the other. He stuck the jug under my nose. This water saved my life. I was praying to Jesus for water. I was sure I was going to die. I found this water in the desert. I think Border Patrol leaves it on the trails for people. No man, I said. Border Patrol couldn't give a shit if people live or die. We left that water. 
Those bastards, he said. I've been waving this flag at their helicopter for three days. They just fly on. When you want them, they're nowhere to be seen, and when you don't, there they are. I checked the markings on the bottle. It had been dropped two weeks earlier at an unusual location we had only gone to because we were looking for the man who died. And then there's this. Over the years, No More Deaths has developed a pretty comprehensive understanding of the area we cover, which at times has been one of the most heavily traveled sections of the entire border. We've formed a fairly clear picture of where traffic starts, where it goes, how it gets there, where it's busy and where it's slow at any given time, where the pinch points are, and so on. I honestly believe that if I worked for the Border Patrol, I could basically point at a map and tell them how to shut down the whole sector. It's really not rocket science. Keep in mind that all of our work has been done by untrained civilian volunteers, armed with low-end GPS units, a few old trucks, run-of-the-mill mapping software, cheap cell phones with spotty service, and a very limited budget. Does it seem logical that we could figure out this stuff while the government of the United States of America cannot? Despite access to helicopters, unmanned drones, electronic sensors, fleets of well-maintained trucks, night vision systems, state-of-the-art communications and surveillance and mapping technology, tens of thousands of paid employees, and a limitless supply of money to shovel down the hole at every possible opportunity? I don't think it does. So what's going on? If you accept the stated objectives of the border at face value, then none of this makes any sense at all. If you accept that the actual objectives may not be the stated ones, things start to come together fast. The task of the Border Patrol and the actual objective of the policies it is there to enforce is not to stop illegal immigration. It is to manage and control that migration. But to what end? To whose benefit? Settle in, because it's complicated. First of all, it's as plain as day that the American economy is dependent, in no small part, on the exploitation of undocumented labor. You know it's true. I know it's true. The Guatemalans installing the air conditioner at the Trump International Hotel know it's true. But it is considered extremely taboo to mention this fact in public. Excuse me, but anyone with a modicum of common sense should be able to see that if the government actually builds a 2,000-mile-long Berlin Wall and then rounds up and deports every one of the nearly 12 million undocumented people in this country, there will be massive and immediate disruption in the agricultural and animal exploitation industries, not to mention in everything related to construction quite possibly leading to a serious breakdown in the national food distribution network and conceivably even famine. I'm not exaggerating. The people who write border policies are not fools. They understand this perfectly, even if most of the people who voted Donald Trump into office do not. Regardless of what any politician says, I seriously doubt that anyone is going to put a stop to illegal immigration as long as undocumented labor is needed to maintain the stability of the economic system. I'll believe it when I see it. But this isn't good news to those of us who dislike seeing people treated abysmally, because what's more important is that this migration will continue to be managed and controlled. The border is a sick farce with a deadly conclusion. The goal is to make entering the country without papers extremely dangerous, traumatizing, and expensive, but possible. 
the point isn't to deter people from coming, far from it. It is to ensure that when they do come, the threat of deportation will mean something very serious. It means spending a ton of money. It means risking your life to return. It means that you may never see your family again. This is supposed to provide American employers with a vast and disposable pool of labor that is vulnerable and therefore easy to exploit. And this, in turn, drives down wages for workers with American citizenship, which is why the old saw about illegals coming to our country and taking our jobs is so convincing. Like many good lies, it's powerful because it omits the most important part of the truth. This lie becomes even more believable when self-described liberals, to be precise, neoliberals, respond with a falsehood of their own. They're doing the jobs that American workers don't want to do. Wrong. The United States contains millions of chronically unemployed and underemployed, unskilled and semi-skilled workers with American citizenship. Many of them would be quite happy to perform many of the jobs now done by undocumented workers if those jobs paid their actual value on the open market, say $15 an hour, instead of the artificially low wages, say 6 to $8 an hour, that are only possible because of immigration enforcement and unequal exchange. I should know. I'm one of those workers. Those who believe that immigration and border enforcement protect the jobs or wages of American workers are seriously misinterpreting the situation. Even if you limit the scope of your analysis to market-based behavior, it seems clear that if undocumented workers were not subjected to such extraordinary risks and pressures, they would act like anybody else and obtain the highest price for their labor that the market could bear. In fact, these same workers have proven themselves able time and again to successfully struggle for higher wages, despite having to overcome obstacles that other workers do not face. But border and immigration enforcement drives down wages across the board. That's the point of it. Here's another lead that is easy to follow. Immigrants from Mexico and Central America serve as the stand-in boogeyman of American politics, always there to pop out of the closet if nothing scarier is at hand. Anti-immigrant fear-mongering waxes and wanes precisely with the apparent threat of jihadi terrorism. Whenever a clear and present danger is lacking, the so-called immigration debate becomes the de facto national security issue for politicians. There are two other factors complicating this equation, the state of the American economy and the state of American social movements. Anti-immigrant sentiment becomes more prominent when the economy is weak and needs less undocumented labor. It becomes less prominent when the economy is strong and needs more. Border enforcement does the same thing. Likewise, it waxes when social movements are weak and wanes when they are strong. One of the unrecognized accomplishments of the Occupy movement was that it shifted the ground of the immigration debate. The scapegoating of immigrants was most intense from the beginning of the financial collapse in 2008 to the onset of Occupy in fall 2011. Then, suddenly, it became acceptable to blame things on bankers and the financial sector, rather than on undocumented people. This helped compel the Obama administration to make the policy changes of 2013 and 14. This is the algebra of American anxiety. Fill in the values and you can do the math. Both of the American political parties are always seeking to capitalize on these dynamics as best as they can. The Democratic strategy is nuanced. First, they blame Republicans for the lack of progress on immigration issues. They hope that this will maintain the support of voters from immigrant communities. Second, they do not actually push any pro-immigrant measures unless they experience severe pressure from their base to do so. 
If the Obama administration did anything worthwhile in the sphere of immigration reform, such pressure is the sole reason why. The Democrats hope that this inaction will appease anti-immigrant voters. Third, they ramped up the rate of deportations to levels never before seen or even imagined. Every single year, the Obama administration deported more people than any previous administration ever did in one year, something like 400,000 annually. Deportations rose steadily from 2009 to 2013, dropped somewhat in 2014 and 15, and spiked again in 2016 as the administration attempted to deport those who crossed during the 2013 and 14 period discussed above. All of this assumes that the notoriously elastic state statistics can be trusted, which is not a safe bet. The Democrats can use those numbers to tout their law and order credentials when they need to court conservative voters. Conversely, they can produce other numbers to make themselves look compassionate when it is more expedient to pander to liberals. The party played out this peanuts routine for eight solid years, except that in this version, Charlie Brown not only misses the football, but also gets thrown under the bus. The case could be made that the Republicans would have been better, since they would have been less nervous about being outflanked to the right on national security. This strategy worked out nicely for the Democrats, if less so for the hundreds of thousands of families they tore apart, or the thousands of people whose bones are strewn across the desert. As I write this, they are shuffling off the stage, every promise broken, meekly handing the reins of power to white nationalists. Thanks and good night, everybody. We couldn't have done it without you. The Republican strategy is more straightforward. They appeal directly to fear and racism. Evidently, this is still a winning ticket. Roughly a million more people voted Republican in 2016 than in 2012. Roughly a million more did so in 2012 than in 2008. Roughly 6 million fewer people voted Democratic in 2016 as in 2008, and Clinton still won the popular vote. So, the lesson of the 2016 elections is not that the Republican base is suddenly drastically larger, especially considering that the population has increased by nearly 20 million since 2008. Rather, it is that after eight years of disappointment, a sizable percentage of the Democratic base appears to have lost faith in the political process. Nevertheless, one can win a battle and still lose a war. Donald Trump's election notwithstanding, the party's stupidity is breathtaking, had they been in their right minds, the Republicans would have passed some kind of Immigration Reform and Amnesty Act during the first Bush administration, as the Reagan administration did in 1986. They could have gotten away with anything after the September 11th attacks. We all know what they got away with instead. Had they passed such a reform, they would have sewn up the Latino vote for a generation, and their party would have been able to retain power for the foreseeable future. Instead, they ignored the country's changing demographics and doubled down on white supremacy. The gambit paid off at least one more time, and the Republicans have irrevocably defined themselves as the party of crude xenophobia and retrograde white power to an increasingly multiracial country and a generation raised on hip-hop. In the long run, I don't believe this is a winning strategy. Most likely it will come back to haunt them in 2020, if not sooner. When it does, it may well tear the party apart, if not the country. Here's one last clue to understanding the real purpose of the border. Much of the legislation that becomes government policy is written by the corporations that stand to profit from it. Arizona's State Bill 1070, which was intended to require police to lock up anyone they stop who cannot show proof of having entered the country legally, was drafted in December 2009 at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Washington, D.C., 
by officials of the Billion Dollar Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, the largest private prison company in the country. CCA changed their name to Core Civic after they lost the contract to run prisons through the Bureau of Prisons. This took place at a meeting of the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, a membership organization of state legislators and powerful corporations. The law, which was partially overturned, but provided the model for copycat legislation that passed in other states, was designed to send hundreds of thousands of immigrants to prison, which means hundreds of millions of dollars in profits for the companies such as CCA that are responsible for housing them. It is not in this industry's interest to completely stop illegal immigration. It is in their interest to let in enough people to fill their jails. So who benefits from the death in the desert? In a broad sense, the entire ruling class does. But that's not the whole story, not by any means. To tell that story, we have to back up a bit. To recap, the passage of NAFTA in 1994 decimated the Mexican agricultural sector and set off a tsunami of migration to the United States. Within the year, the Clinton administration launched Operation Gatekeeper, a program that massively increased funding for border patrol operations in the San Diego sector of the border in California. The federal government greatly stepped up enforcement in this sector and built a 14-mile wall between San Diego and Tijuana. Operation Gatekeeper marked the beginning of a two-decade running process of ever-increasing border militarization that continued steadily throughout the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, and will undoubtedly continue to do so through the Trump administration. Every year, there have been more Border Patrol agents, National Guardsmen, helicopters, fences, towers, checkpoints, sensors, guns, and dogs along the border. By all accounts I've ever heard, it used to be much easier to cross the border than it is now. Most people crossed into relatively safer urbanized areas such as San Diego, El Paso, or the lower Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Starting with Operation Gatekeeper, the Border Patrol made it much more difficult to enter the country in these places. Over the years, it has methodically pushed traffic into the increasingly remote mountains and deserts beyond, contributing to the death toll. At this point, I think, the game is reaching an end point. The government has pushed the traffic into the very deepest and deadliest pockets of the entire border, which is where they want it. This does not mean that the situation is completely static. The Border Patrol will clamp down on some of these pockets sometimes and ease up on others. But on the large scale, it has been more or less stable for many years. It remains to be seen if the Trump administration will fundamentally change this. These changes have produced several interesting side effects. As I said, in decades past, many people used to come to the U.S. to work for a season and then return home until the next year. That's much less common now that getting into the country is such an ordeal. People come and generally stay as long as they can. Also, most people who crossed used to be men with families south of the border. There are many more women and children crossing now that it's no longer feasible for most men to work in the North without leaving their families behind for good. Finally, with the increase in internal deportations, there are many more people crossing now who have lived here for long periods of time and are returning to their homes in the United States. This latter group faces a particularly fiendish dilemma if they run into trouble on the way. I have often heard people whose children live south of the border say things like, I thought I was going to die, and all I could think about was my babies. Better for me to go back home than to risk dying again. I have often heard people whose children live north of the border say things like, If I have to risk dying to get home to my babies, then I will. 
My colleague and I were driving down the road. There were three men standing there, a young guy, an old guy, and a really big guy. How are you doing, I asked them. Not very good, said the young guy. Our guide left us, and we've been totally lost for days. We're exhausted, and we can't go on anymore. Can you just call Border Patrol to come and pick us up? Yeah, I can do that if you're sure that's what you want to do, I told him. They drive this road all the time. I'm kind of surprised they haven't seen you yet. Yes, please call them. We don't want to do this anymore. You're sure? Yes. I called the Border Patrol and gave them our position. While we were waiting, the young guy and the old guy sat close to each other, and the big guy lay down on the other side of the road, with his arms behind his head and his feet propped up on a rock. It was clear that the young guy and the old guy were good friends, and that neither of them liked the big guy very much. They called him flaco, meaning skinny, which was not very nice, since decidedly he was not. The guy is an absolute bastard, said the young guy. I hope I never see him again in my life. A while later, he asked my colleague if he could use his phone. My wife and baby daughter live in Los Angeles, he said. I want to tell them that I'm okay. He took the phone and went off to make the call. Ten minutes later, he came back. Before leaving, he had been calm and collected. Now he looked utterly distraught and had tears running down his face. Fuck this, he said. I'm leaving. My baby is sick. She needs me. Where am I? How do I get out of here? Which way is north? Do you have any water I can take? Do you have any quarters? Jesus, I said. I called the border patrol like an hour ago. They're going to be here any minute. What do you want to do? I'm getting out of here, he said. The old guy came running up to him. What's going on, he asked. Are you okay? Karina is sick. She needs me. I'm going to see her. Wait, that's crazy, said the old guy. How are you? How far is it? Do you have any food? The young guy asked me. I think it's a really bad idea for you to go by yourself, I told him. You might die, and that wouldn't do your daughter any good. Maybe you should go back, rest, get with another group, and try again in a week or two. He shook his head, still crying. She might need an operation. It's going to be really expensive. I can't afford to pay to cross again. I don't have time to talk. They're coming. Ya vienen. He started to walk towards the mountains. The old guy looked at me, looked at him, looked at me again, and looked back at him. Wait, Paco. Okay, I'll go with you. I stuffed as much food and water into their hands as I could. Do you see those mountains way over there? Go that way. When you get close, go towards those other ones. The freeway is over there. If you need help, that's the only place you're going to find it. Do you have any money? They both shook their heads. I gave them five dollars. It is the gospel truth that at that point in time, it was the last five dollars I had to my name. They left. Flacco had not stirred this whole time. I don't like this one bit, my colleague told me. You just called BP on three guys, and they're going to get here and find one? That's not good. Yeah, I said, let's get out of here. I went to Flaco. Um, we're going to go, I told him. Here's some more food and water. They always take a long time to come, but they will get here. Just don't go anywhere, okay? Sure, whatever, he said. We drove away, and I never found out what happened to any of them. As I hope I have made clear, a policy of pushing migrant traffic into extremely dangerous areas does not imply an actual intention to stop or even deter people from entering the country illegally. This complex and perverse strategy has numerous advantages. 
It allows politicians to look tough for the cameras, while still providing the American economy with the farm workers and meatpackers it depends on. It provides ample opportunities to swing huge government contracts to giant corporations, for example, to Wackenhut in G4S to transport migrants, to CoreCivic to detain them, to Boeing to build surveillance infrastructure. It justifies the hefty salaries of the 20,000 people who work for the Border Patrol. And it has other beneficiaries, whom I will speak of shortly. On the whole, border militarization is best understood as a massive government pork and corporate welfare project that has probably only surpassed in the last 20 years by the war in Iraq. The outcome of this policy has been most educational. Just as it used to be easier to cross the border, it also used to be a lot cheaper. This won't be surprising to anyone familiar with the laws of supply and demand. Any service will become more expensive if it becomes more difficult to provide, and the service of being smuggled across the border has certainly been a case study in this law. Prices rose and rose as the Border Patrol pushed people further and further from the cities and established more and more checkpoints that made the journey longer and longer, until at a certain point, there was as much money to be made in moving people as there was in moving drugs. At that point, the cartels that already controlled the drug trade recognized an excellent business opportunity, muscled out the competition, and took over the game. This transformed what had been a relatively low-key affair into a lucrative, highly centralized, and increasingly brutal industry with tens of billions of dollars at stake. There's no doubt that these cartels are among the primary beneficiaries of American and Mexican drug, trade, and immigration policies since the end of the Cold War. Unsurprisingly, the rise of the cartels to a position of absolute dominance within a booming industry led to a mass-based approach and an extraordinarily inhumane methodology. I have commonly heard the organizations referred to as pollero networks, which means something like meat herders, since pollo is the word for a dead chicken rather than a live one. This should offer some indication of the degree of care that these organizations tend to invest in each individual human life throughout the process of bringing people into the United States. I've seen groups of as many as 50 people and heard about groups as large as 100, being driven quite literally like cattle across the desert, with the sick and wounded straggling behind and trying desperately to keep up. I've met people who were told that what is always at best an extremely demanding four- to five-day journey would take as little as 12 hours on foot, and countless more who were left behind to die by their guides without hesitation when they were no longer able to keep up. As a result of border militarization, Prices have risen now to the point that it can cost over $10,000 for Central Americans to be brought into the United States through the networks. Fees for Mexicans vary widely, but they are far from cheap. You won't be surprised to hear that many people who wish to migrate do not actually have $10,000 lying around. The cartels have developed a variety of inventive solutions to this problem, often involving kidnapping and indentured servitude. I've met people who spent years working in the United States simply to pay off their initial fee, some while held in conditions of outright bonded labor. I've met others who made it through the desert and were immediately held for ransom by the same groups that brought them in. The ones who were able to raise a few thousand dollars more were allowed to go. The ones who weren't able to were beaten for days and then driven back out to be left in the desert, where Border Patrol agents who clearly had some sort of working arrangement with the kidnappers pick them up for deportation within minutes. I'm not kidding. It's scandalous. 
As bad as all this is, it still doesn't fully convey the depth of cruelty that has characterized this era of government-sponsored cartel control. Rape and sexual assault of female migrants is absolutely endemic at every step of the process, as it is to varying degrees for transgender migrants and younger or smaller men. This has been greatly exacerbated by the policies of the U.S. government. By pushing the traffic out into the middle of nowhere, they have basically guaranteed that in order to enter the country, women and children have to place themselves in situations in which rape and sexual assault are extremely likely. In addition, the trails are frequented by groups of armed bandits who make their living targeting migrants. I believe that some of the bandits are employed by the cartels themselves, who are simply robbing their own clients, while others are freelancers taking advantage of an easy opportunity to prey on defenseless people who are often carrying their life savings in their pockets. Again, it is primarily because the U.S. government has pushed the traffic to the ends of the earth that these fuckers have been blessed with such favorable circumstances in which to ply their trade. Banditry targeting migrants was particularly widespread on the American side of the Aravaca sector until about 2010, when somebody, probably up the Sinaloa food chain, put a stop to it. Around this time, a friend of ours found the bodies of three men, not far from one of our water stops, hung by nooses around their necks, swinging from a tree, with notes pinned to their chests reading, This is what we do to thieves. I wasn't surprised. It had gotten that bad. Banditry is less frequent there now, although I've no doubt it remains common along other parts of the border. To be fair, I've also heard stories of low-level cartel members acting decently and compassionately, even heroically. It's worth pointing out that the guides, the people who actually walk the groups through the desert to the other side of the checkpoints, are at the very bottom of the pecking order within these networks. Their lives are considered nearly as expendable as those of the migrants. Working in the desert has given me some appreciation for the fact that being a guide would be very stressful. They're supposed to bring large groups of people through harsh terrain where there is no potable water, usually in the dark or in brutal heat, while being hunted by military personnel with guns and helicopters. Their bosses are probably not the kind of people you want to run afoul of. It's hardly surprising that guides are often unwilling to risk losing their whole group because one or two people can't keep up. The whole situation is guaranteed to bring out the worst in someone. This is not to make excuses for them or to absolve relatively powerless people of their personal responsibility when they do indefensible things. It is simply to say that most of the guild has to be assigned to the powerful people whose actions have created this nightmare and who profit most directly from it. There are good guides. Some of them are incredibly skilled. We've heard many stories of guides who did everything in their power to take care of people in their group, and stories of guides who took in stragglers at no financial gain to themselves. The ultimate story of this kind took place in 2005. A group of our volunteers ran into a group of migrants in the desert. One of them was carrying a baby deer on his back. Thank God, he said. We found this little guy tied to a tree. Some hunter must have been using him as bait for mountain lions. We couldn't just leave him there. It wouldn't have been right. We've been carrying him with us for days. But he's really heavy, and we don't know what we're going to do with him when we get picked up. They're not going to let us put him in the van. Can you please take him and find him a home? I've personally run into two different migrant groups who are accompanied by stray dogs both of whom made the same request. 
The deer and both dogs were driven out of the desert to safety. The irony is that it's legal to drive a dog or a deer out of danger, but if you do it for a person, you go to prison. There are also really bad guides. We've heard many stories of abuse. Everyone talks about us like we're the fucking devil, a burro told me once. Some of these fucking guias are the real devils. At least we all know what we're getting into. These guys, they beat people and abuse women and leave kids in the middle of fucking nowhere if they can't keep up. Some of those dudes are just total fucking shitbags. It is easy to demonize drug smugglers, but the behavior of some guides is simply beyond the pale. There are also a lot of guides who are capable of acting either decently or indecently, cruelly or compassionately, heroically or atrociously, depending on the pressures they are under and how they respond to them. The guides themselves are used and discarded by their employers as quickly as tires. Permit me to say another word on the relationship between the governments and the cartels. Basically, it is this. They need each other. They are animated by the same logic, and they share similar interests. Perhaps it is most precise to make a distinction between the situations in the U.S. and in Mexico. In the United States, the cartels need the government, while the government makes great use of the cartels. The cartels rely on the U.S. government to keep the prices of their goods and services artificially high, while the government uses the cartels to justify funneling billions of dollars to the transnational corporations whose interests they represent. On the Mexican side, as I argued above, it isn't realistic to talk about the government and the cartels as if they are separate entities. There, the government and the various cartels are fighting for control of the multi-billion dollar American drug and migration market. Analysts sometimes use the term Colombianization to point out that the state of affairs in Mexico is starting to look a lot like that in Colombia. Perhaps the most striking similarity is in the increasingly sophisticated collusion between elements of the government and the cartels with which they are nominally at war. On a local and state level, it is extremely common for all of the cartels to buy off police, mayors, judges, and other government officials. On the national level, strong evidence suggests that the Mexican army and federal government are favoring the Sinaloa cartel, the largest and richest in the nation, in hopes that it will eventually defeat its rivals and work out a stable agreement with the government such as the one enjoyed by their counterparts in Colombia. There is indeed a great deal of cartel infiltration of the Mexican security forces. This is common on the American side as well, though less widespread. In general, however, the arrangement on both sides of the border is not so crude that there always or even usually has to be direct personnel overlap between, say, Core Civic, the Border Patrol, the Gulf Cartel, and the Mexican Army. What's most important is that all of these organizations have interlocking interests, benefit from each other's activities, and generally act in a way that keeps each other in business. This unholy trinity of government, corporations, and organized crime, three ways of saying the same thing, is a formidable opponent to anyone who hopes to see the death in the desert end anytime soon. Like the three kings, Nacho, Chucho, and Don Bigotes showed up just before Christmas. They had been together through thick and thin. Chucho was from Mexico City and in his early 20s. He was big, strong, and laconic. You could tell he knew how to handle his business in a fist fight. 
Chucho was a talented graffiti writer, made excellent beats, and could quote lyrics by rappers from Madrid to Santiago. Basically, he was a b-boy, and he would have fit in anywhere around the world where hip-hop subculture is recognized. He had an active social media presence, to say the least. Nacho was in his late 30s in Honduran. He had lived and worked without papers in Mexico for over 15 years. To pull this off, he had developed an amazing ability to code switch between Mexican and Honduran Spanish. When he wanted, he could sound like a quintessential Honduran. As needed, he could turn on a dime, recalibrate much of his vocabulary, all his slang, as well as a fair amount of his grammar, and sound exactly like a Mexican. To this day, I've never met anyone who was quite so good at this. Additionally, Nacho was an astoundingly industrious person. He simply could not sit still. He would cook everybody breakfast, do all the dishes, clean up the kitchen, sweep out the medical tent, organize all the clothes and backpacks and shoes, check the oil in the trucks, sort the recycling, take out the trash, fill buckets of compost for the toilets and bags of water for the showers and crawl under the trailer to chase away raccoons with a broom all before noon. He would do more in an hour than a normal volunteer does in a day. We should have paid him to stay at camp. He also liked to hug people. He would give me a good morning hug, a hug when I left camp, a hug when I returned, a hug for dinner, and a hug at night. It never got old. Nacho was truly a good-hearted human being. He was also very short. As memorable as both Nacho and Chucho were, however, Don Bigotes was the real prize. He was 54 and tougher than a boot. Born in Jalisco, he had lived for 35 years in the United States, working all over the country as a pipe fitter, heavy equipment operator, hard rock miner, oil field roughneck, and all sorts of other hard labor. He wore a mustache so huge, so fierce, and so virile that it could only be referred to in the honorific and the plural. Everybody called him Don Bigotes. Not only did he look like Pancho Villa's older brother, he talked like him too, in a rumbling baritone growl punctuated by jaw-dropping curses and memorable turns of phrase. The first time I saw him with his shirt off, I noticed that he had a bullet wound through his lower back with a matching exit wound in front. Some fucking guy shot me in the laundromat in Wyoming, he said, in 1987. And that was that. This trio had been through hell together and had been around each other 24 hours a day for weeks on end. The dynamics of their partnership were hilarious. One time, Chicho and I were talking about Don Bigotes and what an epic character he was. Has he told you about when that guy whose wife he was sleeping with shot him in the laundromat yet? Chicho asked me, his eyes gleaming mischievously. He cackled triumphantly when I told him that Don Bigotes had omitted this salacious detail. The most priceless interactions, however, were between Nacho and Don Bigotes. Occasionally, Don Bigotes would descend into a truly foul mood. I didn't blame him. The country that he had called home had disowned and rejected him after accepting 35 years of his labor, leaving him stranded in the desert on Christmas a thousand miles away from his family after narrowly escaping death. His anger at the whole situation was terrifying to behold. At times like these, the two men had a ritual. Don Bigotes, Nacho would explain. You are not well. You are upset. You need a hug. 
No, I don't, Don Bigotes would respond, staring straight ahead with his fists clenched at his side, looking like he wanted to murder God. Do not hug me, Nacho. Yes, yes, I will, I will hug you, Don Bigotes. Do not hug me, Nacho, I do not want you to hug me. I am, I am hugging you now, Don Bigotes. Stop hugging me, Nacho. I will not, I will not stop hugging you, Don Bigotes, and so on. Some weeks after this trio left camp, I finally heard what happened to them afterwards. In the desert, Nacho and Don Bigotes were separated from Chucho. They made it to Phoenix together. Chucho made it out of the desert on his own several days later. When the truck arrived to pick him up, he did a very smart thing. He texted the number of the license plate to Don Bigotes. When the truck arrived at the safe house, he did another very smart thing. He texted the address to Don Bigotes, along with the name and phone number of his point of contact. Chucho was no fool. So when the traffickers took his phone from him and told him that they would beat him up and dump him in the desert if his family didn't come up with another 3,000 within 24 hours, Chucho stayed calm. He knew what would happen next. When Chucho stopped answering his phone, Don Bigotes called the number that Chucho had sent, and this is exactly what he said in his rumbling baritone growl sounding exactly like the scariest man on earth. Listen to me, Julio, you piece of shit. You are confused. You do not seem to understand. You do not know me, but I know you. You live in a brown adobe house with black shutters and a blue door across the street from a taqueria. You drive a gray 2006 Chevy Silverado with a lift kit and a dent in the left rear quarter panel. In my hand, I hold a phone, Julio, you misbegotten son of a mangy, flea-bitten bitch. Who will I call with this phone? Will I call the Migida? Will I call the police? Perhaps I will think of someone else to call. Perhaps I will call someone to drive by your house to see what your wife looks like or where your children go to school. Perhaps I will find you myself, and perhaps with my own hands, I will hang you by your fucking neck until you are dead. You will not tell me what I will do, Julio. I will tell you what you will do. You will let my friend Chucho go free, or else I will have options. They let Chucho walk right out the door. And 20 minutes later, Don Bigotes picked him up at a gas station in South Phoenix. The last I heard, Nacho and Don Bigotes were planting trees together in Texas. You've just listened to episode 7 of No Wall They Can Build. A Guide to Borders and Migration Across North America, published by the Crime Think Ex-Workers Collective. Stay tuned next week for Episode 8, Designed to Kill Part 2, The Border Patrol, The Game, and The Desert. This audiobook is a production of the Ex-Worker Podcast Collective. You can check us out at crimethink.com podcast. To order a print copy of the book, read a free PDF version online, check out the poster that accompanies the book, or to learn more about the anarchist struggle for a world without borders, visit crimethink.com borders. To learn more about No More Deaths and solidarity work in the desert along the U.S.-Mexico border, visit nomoredeaths.org.